0: This is episode 193 of The Stem Cell Podcast, From Academia to Venture Capital, with Dr. Tomasip Khan. Hey everyone, we are Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you're a trainee interested in being featured in an upcoming episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, we want to hear from you. Email us at info at or send us a message on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. And you and your research could be featured on an upcoming episode. Today, we have another young buck Dr. Tomasup Khan from Civilization Ventures on the podcast to talk about his work as a venture capitalist in the fields of regenerative medicine, synthetic biology, and health technologies. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first,
1: are you attending the ICR annual meeting? We definitely are. Or what about another upcoming stem cell related conference? Enter to win up to 500 U.S. dollars towards your registration fee. The contest closes on May 31st, 2021 and is open to residents of select countries only. So check out the full eligibility rules on the registration form and visit www.stemcell.com slash stemcellconferenceaward to figure out more, to learn more. And we're going to start off on the roundup today with a clinical trial result that has caught the public's attention. This is a huge victory for not only those of us in the stem cell field, but for CERM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which was one of the entities that actually helped fund this trial. This is a uh, basically a three-year time point that's come out in the New England Journal of Medicine. The title of this article in NEJM is Autologous Ex-Vivo Lentiviral Gene Therapy for Adenosine Deaminase Deficiency. We're talking about SCID, uh, basically the Severe Combined immunodeficiency disorder. Disorder. Um, and this is the work that's been pioneered by Dr. Don Cohn over there at UCLA just down the road from me. He's been working on gene therapy approaches to uh, correct different disorders of the blood. And he's been focusing on this for three plus decades now. So this is sort of his life's work. And this is it's to me. This looks like a cure. I I hesitate to say that word, that c word on this show because we know the hype and the hope that it generates. But I really do think this looks like a cure for ADA skid. So this is uh, published in the New England Journal, and this lentiviral based overexpression of uh, ADA, which is the uh, adenosine deaminase. Uh, it's basically cured 48 out of 50 kids who are born with this deadly condition ADA skid. all right And this is a collaborative effort between Orchard Therapeutics, the UCLA and also Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. okay and the, the important thing here is that you know there were very few adverse events. All right, overall survival was 100%, 100% in all studies up to 36 months. So that's three years. Event-free survival was 97%. The patients were able to uh, enhance their metabolic function. Their overall immune reconstitution was robust. 90% of the patients in the U.S. and 100% of the patients in the U.K. study were actually discontinuing their immunoglobulin replacement therapy uh, by 36 months. And there were, again, no major side effects. Most adverse events were of low grade. So this this is fantastic, right? This is the C word. It is perhaps a cure for severe combined, uh, for skid for severe combined immune defic- deficiency disorder. And uh, I'm excited. I'm really excited by this because it's not often on the show that we can talk about cures. Cures using hematopoietic stem cells that were basically taken ex vivo, hit with this lentivirus, overexpressing ADA, putting back into the patients, and it looks like it works. Patients are healthy. These are children who are being treated with this particular therapy. And the hope is they're able to, even at the five and six and seven year time points, this is going to uh, continue, and their their health is going to be maintained. Perhaps this is a long term permanent cure in the field of stem cell biology. Very exciting.
0: Yeah, this is exciting, and I think you know the the Skid cases have been the test case and and the real visible I think target for gene therapy from the beginning. You know, was ever since we start talking about gene therapy. I think the symbol of that was like the boy in the bubble, because you had these monogenic diseases that one shot, you carry, you fix that one thing, and you can restore a, a normal life for these kids who, you know, the, the optics on this disease are, are really gruesome, right? So uh, it's been a long time coming, decades, as you said, and it's really exciting that we've come to this point. Um, but these gears have been out for a, a, a while, uh, and there were, I know, the X kid in the past, uh, a lot of kids seemingly very successful. Um, I wonder about what the horizon is on these studies, and I'm as excited as you. I mean, this and the sickle cell trials that are going on are showing really outsized success, um, unprecedented. But I wonder, how long are we going to have to follow these patients to worry about, like, oncogenic insertion or mutation? I know the technology has evolved with the safe harbor and all kinds of methods for mitigating or eliminating um, this oncogenic insertion with the Lenti. But that's the the question, right? Eliminating. Like, can you really 100% guarantee that you're not going to disrupt any genes that lead to cancer? And how long do you have to follow these kids? before you can rule that out
1: it's a fair point i think the answer is indefinitely i think you're gonna have to follow up with these kids into adulthood just to make sure there's no latent reactivation of any of those oncogenic pathways but really any time every single time one of these time point papers comes out it is a major major splash in the new england journal or some other high profile clinical journal um and the news is seems to be always good, so let's cross our fingers for these kids and hope they stay healthy. Yes, and
0: uh, I mean, let's be honest: living with this crippling disease or having to surveil for cancer—that's a that's an easy choice. And and you know, let's be clear: you know, there's somatic cell mutations throughout life. You're getting these little minor mutations, especially in the hematopoietic system that's highly proliferative. and that's what brings me to my next story. you know, I love the blood. And I think at this point anybody who listens to this show uh, will know from listening to me, yap on and on about the origins and the, the ontogeny of, of the hematopoietic tissues in human is still very much open to debate. And uh, the target, you know, a true hematopoietic stem cell, is of huge relevance clinically. So it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big question. Um, and it's still quite controversial. Just to review, you know, in terms of basic embryology, uh, when the first divergence of cells, you get the inner cell mass and you get the trophoblast, right? The inner cell mass becomes the embryo proper. The trophoblast becomes the extra embryonic tissues, chorionic sac, placenta. And then the ICM Further differentiates into the epiblast and the hypoblast. Everyone's sweating the epiblast all the time. It's the epiblast because it's the three primary germ layers. And the hypoblast, by contrast, is thought mainly to generate extra embryonic tissues, right? But the hypoblast has a lot of relevance still because there's a debate as to whether or not it is the site of origin of hematopoietic cells, okay? So now let's review briefly hematopoiesis, the first hematopoietic cells. They come up around 16 days after conception in the blood islands, right? Um, and these are, the blood islands are, arise from extraembryonic embryonic mesoderm. Uh, and there's evidence in mice that per, per, uh, suggests that the primitive streak is the origin of these blood islands. But in human, a lot of histological descriptive studies suggest that it's the hypoblast, okay? And everybody defers to the mouse because the genetic tools you have to assess in the mice are much more powerful whereas in human it's pretty much descriptive you're looking at histology right nevertheless in the human there's thoughts that's coming from the hyperblast and studies show that around eight weeks after conception uh most of the circulating erythroid cells uh are derived from the blood islands but most of the of the erythroid cells in the liver come from the agm what's the agm the site of this definitive wave of hematopoiesis, right? So the origins of these erythroid cells are still open to debate, okay? Then you get hematopoietic colonization of the bone marrow at around 10 weeks, and that's when you get the immune cells, the monocytes, the macrophages, and your boys or your girls, the hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, right? And these are the guys we want. These are the ones we're after clinically, all right? and that sets the stage for this inquiry by Peter Campbell, and Anna Svejic, they are at the Wellcome in Cambridge. And their goal was to add a higher resolution to the lineage trace in the human. As we said, it's descriptive, right? You can't genetically engineer these things. You can't lentivirally trace the things in the the body, in the fetus. So you do your best. And this really is the best work uh, that I've seen that they've done here. And what it Um, exploits is, as I alluded to earlier, these naturally arising somatic mutations uh, that can be used effectively as like a barcode uh, to use for lineage tracing because they're inherited by all the progeny. You get a mutation, all the daughter cells are going to have that same mutation. They become permanent marks and they add up, right? So you can really track back um, and identify clonal relationships and reconstruct the phylogeny of a population. And that's the key. And uh, what Dr. Shragic and Campbell did here in their group, of course, uh, what they did is they did whole genome sequencing of single cell derived colonies from human fetal uh, uh, hematopoietic stem progenitor cells. All right. So they took from a, an, uh, two fetuses, an eight week and an 18 uh, uh, week post week, 18 uh, week post conception fetuses that were aborted. And they sorted out the hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, right? And generated clones of these, uh, 511 separate clones of these. And then they sequenced them, uh, the whole genome sequencing, at high enough depth that they can reliably call out these single nucleotide variants, right? And they found, first of all, that there were a lot of, uh, there were tens of mutations that arose uh, between up to that point. By 18 weeks, you had tens of mutations that, somatic mutations that uh, had arisen in these hematopoietic cells. And this is what's really important. Then they took non-hematopoietic tissues from the same fetuses, right? At the same time that they took the cells to do the cloning, I mean, the clone expansion and sequencing, they fixed the tissues, they put them in PFA, and then later on they went back section them and by microdissection they they were able to use targeted probes against those same mutations that they found in the in the in the colonies the 511 clones they looked for those same mutations and then by finding them within the tissues they were able to reconstruct both the you know the timing of the divergence of the extra embryonic and embryonic tissues during development um and also kind of documented the phylogeny of of the acquisition of mutations in the distribution of uh, erythroid cells um and erythroid clones throughout those tissues and ultimately through i mean this is like very complex math and informatics and stuff that i just saw a bunch of graphs that i couldn't understand i had to skip to the conclusion so you guys who know what you're doing go out there and read it and critique it but ultimately what they settled on is that the hypoblast is in fact likely the origin of extraembryonic mesoderm and primitive blood islands, which I think is a big deal because anytime you find something that's been so locked in dogmatically from a a robust system like the mouse, then you find evidence to the contrary in a human. I think it's really exciting because it shows and underscores the differences between the systems.
1: Yeah, this is a real tour de force. I mean, you're using the somatic mutations that are naturally occurring to ultimately, you know, tell us about fundamental processes of human development and how that's really changing the dogma. Uh, this this is one of those papers that really potentially changes the dogma of human development. Um, I love this story in part because it told me about something it, it told me about somatic mutations and how, readily, you know, how how frequently they actually occur early on. I actually was completely blown away by that. It also is a little scary if you think about it. Somatic mutations are occurring at a relatively high rate early on in uh, the hematopoietic stem cells, in the hematopoietic colonies. And, you know, most of these mutations are going to be occurring in some random region of the genome that's not going to detrimentally impact cellular function but all it takes is you know one negative mutation one bad mutation to lead to oncogenesis and a lot of it to me kind of seems like luck don't you think oh yeah i mean bad
0: luck in these cases when you look at the concentration of cancer you see a lot of childhood cancer and then you see in older individuals and that's that's because of this presumably right right You've got to run the gauntlet of primary hematopoiesis and proliferation there. And if you get through without some kind of malignant clone, then you can live to late adulthood. But as you said, I mean, no one really, I don't think you could point to anything that really proved that or provided very strong evidence to that until this story and others like it. I mean, I don't want to poo-poo the work that led up to this point, but as you said, this is a powerhouse, the tech. Um, that allow this really beautiful detective story is going to be, um, you know, a lot of a lot of ideas are going to are going to be built on this.
1: We love the tech here on the show. This had a little bit of everything, you know, deep whole genome sequencing, laser capture microdissection, and really the last two papers that we're going to talk about in the roundup are also tech related papers. This one that I'm going to talk about is uh, kind of building on a compound that a lot of us in stem cell biology love to use ROCK inhibitor. ROCK inhibitor is something that I use almost every other day to help with the iPSC survival during passaging. But for those of us who work with ROCK inhibitor, we know it's not perfect. It does it, we were talking about it before the show. It was really game changing when ROCK inhibitor came on the scene because you could actually Make your cells survive <laughs> really for the first time for an extended period of time after passaging. Stem cells are notoriously poor when it comes to their survival post-passaging, especially if you're going to maintain them in small colonies or near single cell form. So, along came the rock inhibitor, our trusty friend, small molecule compound, and it really changed the game. But as I mentioned, rock inhibitor is not perfect. Uh, there is a need to really improve it and perhaps we can make that cell survival even better. So here comes the lab of uh, Ilya singek over at the NIH. I believe he's at NCATS. Uh, first author Yu Chen and this is actually a Nature Methods paper. We don't talk about Nature Methods too much on the show. The title is a versatile polypharmacology platform promotes cryo sorry, cytoprotection and viability, also cryoprotection actually, and viability of human pluripotent and differentiated cells. The approach here was pretty straightforward. What they did was they conducted a number of uh, high-throughput screens to test thousands of drugs and small molecule compounds, and identified a unique combo that I can actually improve stem cell survival and the survival of differentiated populations from pluripotent stem cells at a level that's substantially higher than even rock inhibitor can. So there are three, uh, four compounds in here. Uh, chroman one emercasin, some polyamines, and trans-ISRIB, which they've dubbed CEPT, C-E-P-T. So this is their cocktail that enhanced cell survival of genetically stable pluripotent stem cells. And how did it do it? It blocked a bunch of different stress mechanisms that otherwise can compromise a cell structure and function. It had a bunch of downstream applications for multiple differentiated cell types, improved cryoprotection, improved cytoprotection, um, looked at cardiomyocytes, neurons, routine cell passaging, uh, embryoid bodies, organoid formation, really any single cell cloning, gene, gene editing, this paper had a little bit of everything. Any circumstance it seemed like where you want to improve the survival of your pluripotent stem cells... Or your differentiated populations from your pluripotent stem cells, the sept did a better job. It looks like than even ROCK inhibitor. So I think this is a um, it's a it's a technical paper, but a I think a really critical one because no matter what field in stem cell biology you work in, you're worried about cell survival in vitro. And it seems to me like this could really change the game and take things even another step beyond our trusty compound ROCK inhibitor.
0: Yeah, these te- these kind of technical method stories don't get enough run, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, early in my postdoc, where I just derived some of the earliest stem cell lines, and we were doing like stuff that they're still doing now, right? The the chimerism and human and mouse and all that stuff. We still had no idea how to how to do like robust. Uh, hr or any kind of genetic engineering cells because we couldn't break them down to single cells until yoshiki sasai and nature biotech 2007 may he rest in peace came out with the rock inhibitor and it was one of those things where it just changed the game you know technically and everything that happened since then kind of integrated Y27632 at some point in the protocols. Every paper had it in there, you know? It's one of those things that you can spring off the top of your mind, Y27632, you know? <laughs> you know those numbers and letters because you use it every day. So I, I'm glad to see that uh, these these kind of technical, I, I would say watershed uh, papers are, 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 I mean, we should give them more attention because I guarantee you there's going to be a lot of labs that look at this paper and then use this compound from
1: this day forward. Y27632, it's basically tattooed on my eyeballs right now. And, oh, man, I use it every single day. It's our, one of our favorite compounds. Of course, another one being CHEER 99021, one that I use a lot. But yes, uh, hopefully this is the type of work that's going to be readily adapted Uh, by labs around the world. Now, I I didn't take a close look at the relative costs of these different reagents, these four compounds in this cocktail. I think part of the reason rock inhibitor is so universally used is because it's relatively cheap as a small molecule. It's, you know, I I don't want to quote numbers because those numbers change, but it is cheaper than most of your like proteins or whatever. And it's one of those compounds that if I was lucky enough, to start my own lab, it's basically top five first things I would buy out of the gate, right? You got to have your rocket, header. You know what I
0: mean, Dylan? Absolutely know what you mean. And you're right. It is, it's basically free. So uh, the SEPT, I, I take it back. I should revise my statement. The SEPT, <laughs> if it's expensive, nobody's going to use it. Okay, guys. So why don't you give it away? You want to change the world? You, you're not going to get rich doing it. Uh, all right. You know, this is pretty much a tech roundup today I mean not I would say even with the first story NEJM you know that's the the fruits of some of the highest tech uh, of this millennium you know genetic engineering and moving on now to microscopy because we haven't given enough of the 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 visible uh attention here and I love uh I wouldn't say I love descriptive biology but I love microscopy I love a pretty picture and I'm I'm complaining about a lot of things today, so I'm gonna complain about this too. People always poo-poo the descriptive stories. Like there's not enough insight. If you don't do an experiment or knock something out, that you're not gonna get there. And my other story was a similar one, the hematopoetic poetic ontogeny. It was a detective story, but it was a bit descriptive. And this is similar. This is using two photon microscopy to do lineage tracing in mouse cornea but unlike the human story where you couldn't get in there genetically there's like a million uh different mice that were made for this story and it's about really it's about the cornea and how it's different from other uh epithelium so stratified squamous epithelium generally they their regeneration process is that they they're constantly growing right and you have the terminally differentiated cells they're shed from the surface and replenished from by keratinocytes that are in like the basal layer underneath, right? And those are the stem cells, those keratinocytes are the stem-like cells. Um, and this has largely been learned from studies in epidermis, the skin, or esophagus that suggest this kind of basal layer keratinocyte that that is regulating stemness and, and differentiation based on local interactions with the neighboring stem cells, maybe like a planar cell polarity type of thing. Um, but the cornea, in contrast, is unique because it doesn't have that the same or this as simple uh, uh, stem regenerative uh, characteristics. And just to you know, talk about the cornea generally, it's critical. We love the cornea. You need it for vision. It's a protective barrier, but also refracts light toward the retina. Um, and the corneal epithelium is proposed to have like a more hierarchical uh, stem cell niche, right? It's is called the, the limbus. Okay, and in the limbus, there are long lived stem cells that are, you know, for the life of the cornea, and then there's more differentiated progeny, a kind of transit amp- amplifying cell that replenish all the corneal tissue. Um, and the organization, as it's understood right now, suggests that there's two different uh, types of cells, there's two different like waves of cells. And in order to, to really clearly define that, um, Pantelemon Rompolas. I love pronouncing names. I mean, pronouncing names on this on this show, and I do such a terrible <laughs> job, but it's fun. Pantelemon. Uh, he's at the Perelman School of Medicine, uh, studying the eye. And what they did is they tried to use photon, two photon here, to resolve the dynamics of the corneal stem cells and their progeny in in the live mouse cornea. And there was a lot of different mice that they used. Uh, But it it ran the gamut from your basic tamoxifen inducible, you know, to label with a tomato or GFP to these photoactivable uh, fluorophores. And what they showed is that the the location of the the stem cell within the tissue will predict its differentiation status. Um, And that cells that are in the inner limbus they usually undergo a symmetric division that like uh, <clears throat> creates this, uh, well, it maintains the stem cell population while also um, undergoing a directed differentiation to create the transit amplifiers that support uh, homeostasis. And they use this this in situ photo labeling com- combination with the two photon to actually visualize the exit from the niche and these beautiful patterns Uh, of centripetal uh, growth. Uh, You got to look at the pictures in this. It's really lovely. And the eye is such an accessible model, right? Um, They also show that slow cycling stem cells are distinct um, and that they have these long clonal dynamics during homeostasis, essentially this like slow growth, but also in response to injury, they're mobilized um, to regenerate the cornea. So uh, I love a, a descriptive story with a lot of pretty, pretty pictures, and I have to hand it to the group here, uh, Pantalimo Rompolas and his, and his crew, that they took it to the highest level. That's why it made it into Cell Stem Cell. Beautiful story, literally, um, and a lot of insight too.
1: Beautiful story. I think two photon is really changing the game. You know, if you love confocal, just wait till you see two photon images. Until if you, if you never have. Um, I'm an in vitro guy, (laughs) so the first thing I saw when I saw this study was, or thought of, was it must be really tough to image those mice, Mm. right? Like, how do you get them to stay still like that and just do two-photon on live mice by shining light in their eyes, that cannot be an easy thing to do, right? Oh
0: man, why did you have to? Now I'm like cringing <laughs> just at the thought of a mouse getting laser blasted in its eye. Seems a bit inhumane, but no, I think they that that they, they acknowledge. I think that that in like many descriptive studies, um, I wouldn't say it's n equals one, but the the the, the each experiment, I think you could say is, is different from the next, um, even though these are mice and inbred. Uh, I think that they did, did suggest that there's, there's maybe to, to increase the pool of mice that they look at in this way, and maybe to get some supporting um, genetic studies will be necessary to, to make firm conclusions. But I mean, come on, the pictures are so beautiful, Arun. Did you see those pictures? So anyway, moving on now to our interview with Tomasa. But before we get to that, I have a message from Stem Cell. In this episode, we talked a lot about the clinic. You know, the first story in the roundup was about how genetic engineering has finally reached the clinic, and it won't be long before we have pluripotent stem cells and their differentiated derivatives entering the clinical sphere. So, as research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com cellquality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, guys. Today on the show, we have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Tomasup Khan, who is vice president at Civilization Ventures, recently trained in the lab of Sergio Pasca at Stanford University at the Institute of Stem Cell Biology, and regenerative medicine. His project there was using stem cell biology, genome engineering, and live imaging to elucidate biological mechanisms underlying neuropsychiatric disorders. He had a big paper that splashed in Nature Medicine around this time last year. Tomasa, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Dylan and Arun, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for being here, man. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're actually starting in the stem cell PhD program at Stanford, just as I was wrapping up. We were talking about it before the show. And it's been really exciting to see your evolution as a scientist over the years. You just finished up your PhD in the lab of a good friend, Sergio Pasca, as Dalen mentioned, focusing on modeling neuropsychiatric disorders in vitro. But even before that, you worked on neural stem cell differentiation during your time at NYU. So we'll actually get to your most recent career transition to venture capital in a minute. But just to start off, tell us about your background in neuroscience and stem cell biology, and in particular, how you got so excited about the field in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's a fun question. Um, I When I started undergrad at NYU, I knew I wanted to do neuroscience, and a lot of that interest actually stemmed from me loving robotics. And in high school, um, I would, it was part of the robotics club. We would, uh, program robots to be self-autonomous so there'd be elements of ai and ml before i knew what ai and ml were and you'd have to you know train them on these tasks and i thought this is the most difficult job on the planet uh because you have to teach a robot to think like we do and so that just kicked off sort of you know trying to go to the frontier of something i just found very interesting i love psychology i loved cognition um i watched all the movies about these things i can vividly remember um, when I watched Shutter Island and my, how you know my mind was blown I think that's the first reckoning I had of the human psyche and how different it can be across different people and I just wanted to study that and learn more about that NYU so that's why I ended up majoring in neuroscience at NYU I actually started in the lab of Joe Ledoux, who studies um, fear uh, and the amygdala um, so we were doing a lot of neuroanatomical, you know, as an undergrad, you're going in and slicing brains and doing immunostains and just trying to find where every neuron's projecting. And I did that for a couple of years. And um, there's this gentleman by the name of Demetrius Plekantanakis uh, at Langone, NYU Langone, who had started a lab studying stem cells and glioblastomas. So the question was, you know, a lot of cancer therapies don't work. Glioblastomas are an awful, awful um, solid tumor. They have a terrible mortality rate. What is going on with these tumors? What's driving these mutations? What are the oncogenic driver mutations? How can we help these patients? And so, asked him for a rotation, sort of a rotation. Um, he was nice enough to take time out of his very busy neurosurgical uh, training and day to meet with me and ended up joining his lab with a, a very great um, PhD mentor there. And so, from then on, it just, uh, it kept going and I kept uh, falling more in love with stem cell biology and the power and the hype around it. And that just obviously led me to applying to mostly neuroscience programs and this one small program called stem cell biology out at Stanford, which I did mm-hmm. and ended up, um, accepting and going.
0: Yeah, it might have been small that lab when you joined, but it has blown up since. And I mean, you talked about like the biology and the clinical import there with GLIO, but you started by talking about your, you know, what introduced you to uh, neuro and that was more this idea, right? And that's what for me has always been the twist with neuro. I've I've admired neuroscientists, but I've admired them the way I admire like a a firefighter or somebody, you know, Mm. I'm impressed by the work. I appreciate somebody's got to do it. But I would not choose it for myself because frankly, I'm afraid of the work. Um, specifically, I'm intimidated by the idea of like, how do you unpack the mechanisms of cognition, personhood? You talked about your study of fear. Like there's all these things that are wrapped up in the gray and white matter there. Um, and you don't have the classic models, right? You, the, the mouse, any model you have is going to fall short or going to be grossly unethical. So, um, or inhumane. So, uh, you know, it's tough, but the tech has made a lot of great leaps and bounds in the last couple of decades, right? It's not just the biology there. It's uh, the fMRI, you know, AI, you talked about programming, other developments. They're all converging, it seems, on neuroscience as this last great frontier. Um, How are these technologies changing the way we understand both like the, the physiology, normal physiology, as well as some of the pathology? Uh, of of you know neuro yeah i think for
2: me and maybe others it's come down to understanding how hardware works right we you know in our more basic understanding of life in the universe and neuroscience we see ones and zeros and we see inputs and outputs and we programmed computer that ways and i think sometimes that's how the we've taught ourselves that's how the brain computes too right it's a bunch of ones and zeros um in a multiplex manner and that just means there's so much data it is not possible to handle it and understand it with our current existing technologies right there's just there's probably zettabytes or i don't even know how big that number can get of things we compute every second every millisecond and we have to figure out the technologies Um, and build them out in a way that we can start understanding all that data all those connections all those interactions all those lived experiences and trying to make sense of them because obviously you know the evolution's got a few tens of millions of years on us uh in in developing these programs and we've just started (laughs) with the computer so we have a way way to go but um I think we're excited about things like quantum computing and just ways that we just have to increase in magnitude our our ability to compute and understand these things. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Dalen and I are just dumb cardiovascular biologists here. (laughs) You know, I think we've actually lamented in the past about how it seems like all the cool tech is coming to neuroscience first, and we get to play with it after you guys mm-hmm. get to play with it, right? So yeah. you've got optogenetics, which is also you know pioneered by another lab out of Stanford. And of course, you graduated from Sergio Pasco's lab, who's been yeah. a huge friend of the show. And his lab is doing all things related to organoid technology. And they've really been on fire as of late. We've covered so many new papers coming out of their lab. In particular, we have been really captivated by some of the assembloid work. Which I'm, of course you're familiar with. You're combining multiple organoid types to make circuits, quote unquote, circuits in vitro. It's super cool. And you actually published that big time paper in Nature Medicine using cortical organoids to actually model 22q11.2 deletion syndrome in vitro. And you killed it in your thesis defense last year. Although I'm sure you would have loved to defend in person. But hey, you know, 2020, right? Mm-hmm. But for those of our listeners who weren't at your thesis defense, tell us about what you actually found in your study and what you. Learned Learn during your course in uh, a surgeon's lab and what it was also like to actually work every day with this exciting new technology in cortical organoids
2: yeah i'll start with um saying something about what you just said on this uh maybe fomo or a little bit of scare of neuroscience. When we, when we look at the oncologists and the cardiomyocyte people, we think y'all got to figure it out. You know, we think the heart, man, you can do it. It's plumbing. You figure it out. Do what you got to do. You can give people a normal lifespan. Cancer. I mean, just look at what we've been able to do with cancer over the last 50 years, right? We have curative intent treatments. We have been able to cure people from cancer. And then you look at neuroscience, right? This age old manifestation of neuropsychiatric disorders and neurodegenerative disorders. And we haven't done much um therapeutically yet right we're we're really decently far behind um and so when i was and sergio will tell you the same thing he starts every talk with this uh very funny meme about an antler uh, a deer with small antlers and a deer with really big antlers and how we always look around and go man we haven't done anything yet um and so he understands and i think that's what drove him to kind of pushing the limits of organoid technologies and stem cell biology Like Dylan, you started um, off by saying, we don't have the models. We don't have great models, right? We have models that let you look at different things, but neuroscience is going to come down to using a lot of different models to understand things, right? Software models and organoid models and mice models and primate models. And when I joined Sergio's lab, he had started to tackle these problems. He wanted to really know at the molecular level what's going on, right? Let's take the typical reductionist biology approach. Let's bring this down to the protein-protein interactions, the you know interactions in the genome, and let's see what drives these changes. And one of the ways we thought about doing this was uh, using um, the 22q11.2 deletion model. It's a copy number variation, uh, decently high um, prevalence, 1 in 4,000, potentially 1 in 1,000 in utero. The disease manifests with a lot of other things like tetralogy of Fallot and Immunological issues, babies are born without thymus. So it comes with a lot of comorbidities. But one of the most stark features of the disorder is it has this incredibly high rate of um, intellectual disability and schizophrenia, right? So using the genetics approach, right, sort of use a disorder of a known genetic etiology and see what's going on at the genomic level to the protein level. So we started modeling this in IPS uh, induced, that induced polypoint stem cells. We differentiated them in 3D brain organoids that resemble a cellular model of the cortex, so many excitatory cells. And let's just focus on that and look at the excitatory cells. What's different about these cells? What's different about how they fire, how they act, how they interact? Um, and we did many, many experiments with many, many people in the lab that have helped differentiate these things to hundreds of days sometimes, right? These are very long-term cultures. They require your attention every day, weekends, weeknights, doesn't matter. You gotta go in, you gotta feed them, you gotta take care mm-hmm. of them. You gotta stagger their differentiations because if you got a 120 day old organoid and it gets contaminated, you better hope you got some more coming down the pipeline. Otherwise, it's gonna be a very long PhD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, I it was very hard work and it was a Herculean effort, not just by me, but by the lab and my amazing collaborators and helping me along the way. I worked with an amazing electrophysiologist who helped me tap into understanding what are the cells doing at the molecular level? How are they communicating? What's wrong maybe about the communication? I had an amazing computational biologist, genomics person I worked with um, down at UCLA after we had done these massive differentiations across, you know, 15 patients and 15 control subjects and differentiated them at different time points and did RNA-seq, how do you bring that data together? I mean, they were instrumental in helping me understand at the macro level what's happening, and then at the micro level what are, what's, what's going on with the cells. And that's what really drove us to diving a bit deeper, and I can talk a bit more about the paper and the mechanisms, but really trying to understand how calcium um, is interacting, what type of channels are potentially disrupted, um, and, you know, more mechanistic studies uh, that are a bit deeper in understanding the interaction between these
1: cells
0: yeah it was monumental is the word i mean there was a lot of patience a lot of controls and as you're saying there are a lot of people um, putting it all together but yeah one of the key takeaways for me um because you know therapeutically speaking and you said to you alluded to it you know we've, we've learned a lot um in the neurospace, space but therapeutically we haven't really gotten very far um, and that was a big a profound implication I thought of of the paper was the idea that you can um, rescue the dysfunction in, in neuronal calcium signaling there, even using the antipsychotics that are already in play, right? Uh, but just for for myself, my knowledge, our listeners maybe who are probably all smarter than me, but maybe a few of them don't know. Um, what what does that treatment look like when you're talking about these diseases where the kind of symptoms or pathology manifests due to, like maybe a developmental aberration is the idea that you can obviate, you can avoid that uh, aberration by just treating prophylactically. I know disease to disease, it it varies widely, but generally speaking, are we talking about like in utero treatment in some cases of the mother during fetal stages? Are we talking about like lifelong chronic treatment with these diseases so you can mitigate the onset of symptoms? Talk a little bit about that, will you? Sure. I think... um...
2: It'll depend on the individuals and how the systems are set up. You could imagine we could do gene editing to try to fix the cells very early on in utero, right, as they're zygotes and as they get a little bit bigger and gene edit in the the region and fix, quote-unquote, the genome, right? That would be one way to do it. Um, Prophylactically, I think, is a very high bar to put children as they're growing... When they might have not even manifested any of these symptoms and they may never well, Mm. um, to put them on antipsychotics, which have quite a few side effects, Mm. would be a very high bar and probably not that attractive to most people, right? Mm. Um, Later on, though, a lot of these patients are managed as many patients with intellectual disability and schizophrenia are managed with the different antipsychotics and um, drugs, is sort of what the standard of care looks like, potentially making better drugs that target. The specific things we found out about 22Q, the specific channels that we found to be affected would be a starting point with these patients. And then we can start working backwards um, in trying to go for more curative intent treatments early on because even early on, depending on how you're going about um, creating a baby, you might have other options right and as i said the the neuropsychiatric issues are one of the issues but they're not the only issue and so you would help that child in many ways if you were able to edit back in this part of the genome
1: yeah and if we're going to talk about bringing therapies to patients and therapeutics we got to talk about funding those therapies too and It's good that you're actually here on the show, you just made a big career transition to venture capital. And it's great that we have you here because we haven't really had anybody with your particular background in VC on the show. So after graduating from Stanford, you actually decided to make that jump away from the lab bench in spite of this amazing paper that you had into VC and specifically to Civilization Ventures, where you actually lead the firm's scientific due diligence and academic outreach programs. It does seem like it was a long time coming since even Even since your undergrad days, you've had an interest in the finance and the business side of the life sciences, but a lot of our listeners, many of whom are trainees and those folks outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, which is ripe with venture capital funding, you might not have a good idea of what VC is all about. So tell us about that most recent career jump and what you actually had to do behind the scenes in grad school to make the transition a reality and what you actually do day to day as a VP at Civilization.
2: Yeah, I can talk a bit about that. It was a long time coming. Um, I loved science. I don't know how I felt about academia, but I knew I loved science and I loved being close to the science. Um, So during graduate school, I had been able to take part in this amazing organization out there called Biotech Connection Bay Area. It's called BCBA. It's a nonprofit across the Bay Area schools that works to connect scientists, PhDs, MDs, postdocs. To the industry, right? And that could be large pharma. It could be smaller biotech companies that are looking for one off projects, and it can be venture capital firms. Um, I happened to end up volunteering on the first project with a venture capital firm. Um, it was a new partner hired into a larger technology investing firm who just needed a bit more um, boots on the ground and help in evaluating companies. And so that's what we did. And I got to see this career path. I didn't think it was a career path back in the day, but just this opportunity to find and influence the very early days of a company, not just by writing a check, right? I like to think good VC firms will do a lot more than just write a check for you. They'll support the entrepreneurs early on and help them figure things out. I did these projects a couple of times and out of your PhD, you know, you have a couple of options. You can go to a postdoc um, you can go do one of these awesome fellowships and have sort of an assistant professor role right out the gate. You could go into industry as a scientist and work with some of the greatest, you know, pharma companies around or early stage of biotech, or you can go into consulting. Um, I actually was pretty set on going into consulting. I had applied to consulting firms, had an offer at a consulting firm. I, uh, did some work there and I thought that's where I would go. Until this opportunity sort of just presented itself to me, and the partner asked me to stay at the firm um, after having moonlighted there for a little bit. And so it was a rare experience because I got to test the waters in a way in a decently serious manner, um, even during my PhD, you know, nights, weekends, kind of protected to learn about the industry and biotechnology and the trends. I was just enamored by how fast things were moving and how quickly you could focus on a problem, and try to develop a solution for it outside of academia. right? And I got to do that, and so I ended up um, transitioning, like you said, uh, into this firm and this position. People ask me a lot about how do you get into venture, and I don't think I have a good answer for that, because it's just a position that was there, and I serendipitously sort of started moonlighting at a firm, and there ended up being a job there. It's not something that was on my horizons, it's not something I was seriously considering thought this is something people do later on in life, you know, after they build great biotech companies or worked um, at the large pharma companies or had an illustrious professorship positions, and now can kind of go and join a venture firm and fund the new discoveries. Uh, so that's how it started.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could see uh, you may not know, but I could see why the VC firms want you partner. I mean, there's this the way I see it, right? So like, I'm I'm not an old man or anything, but I, I was introduced to science by like genetic engineering. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s, that was it. Science was, I'm going to be a genetic engineer. That's what I used to say when anybody asked. I didn't even know what it meant. But that now, it seems like all those technologies that were hailed as the next generation of therapy, um, I'm encouraged to see that now they're kind of steadily bleeding into the marketplace, right? So, Civilization Ventures, for example, has fostered uh, Rocket Pharma, that you know went public. I guess that's what you do—you go public. That would happen. Yeah. Uh, Singular Bio, another one, um, and they foster them into the big leagues, right? Trans—they they went from before to after, and now they're players in the marketplace. Um, but those two specific companies are about gene therapy and diagnostics, right? Ideas that were seeded decades ago. Uh, and then there's you. You come in with the stem cell expertise and there's this whole new frontier of cell-based therapy, maybe. Um, do you think that the the path for technology based on stem cells, regenerative medicine, cell-based therapy are going to have a more... Um, ascendant a more accelerated uh path to the marketplace relative to gene therapy which has taken decades or do you think that's just how what it takes you know it's decades with the slow slow cook you know and then and then you know once people have forgotten about it and moved on that's when the, the cures start coming out into the into the free market
2: yeah this the gene therapy um world as you know there are clinical trials back in the 80s that didn't have great outcomes and sort of that that field slowed down a little bit right when we understood that we could um edit the genome and do different things and it sort of has had a resurgence obviously because of talons and zinc finger nucleases and of course crispr cas9 um i think when it comes to stem cell biology or cell therapies it was a field that really started with a lot of money uh, and a, a lot of big promises, right? A lot of big promises, when they're made to the public, are usually in the domain of, "Hey, we're going to be able to bring therapeutics to the market that are going to help patients one day." Right? That's always been sort of the promise. Um, that is a difficult task for academia alone to handle, right? To deliver on that promise to say, "Hey," You should fund, you know, CERM, the California Institute of Regional Medicine. You should keep firming, uh, funding stem cell research with billions of dollars because look at what we've done over the last 10 years. The way you're going to be able to say that is probably not convince them with the cool new developmental biology you understood or the disease mechanisms you understood, but actually, Hey, we've targeted these things and sure, we didn't succeed every time, but we have some promising things that are now in the clinical trial pathway, right? That can actually reach a patient one day. I think that's when you need the help of the private industry to come and help because it essentially helps validate part of your own value propositions when, you know, the academics write these amazing, beautiful grants to get funded and to do research. Um, and I think temple biology is one of the unique fields where that is why it is where it is the way it is. Um, because the field kind of started on that promise and I, the, the my mentor and my undergrad had done his, postdoc with Lauren Studer, who's been a champion of this field and done some amazing work. Um, and I love to see that stuff because it means we're moving the needle therapeutically, right? We're taking these amazing discoveries scientists are making every day and we're translating them and you're going to need capital to help there. So as much as people also see my own transition out of academia into venture, it is quite academic still because every day is an academic exercise of understanding reading papers, talking to scientists, figuring out how can we narrow the scope of a project, fund it, and have the best potential shot on goal to helping patients one day um, in the near and far future.
1: Yeah, you need the full ecosystem, right? You need the academic folks combined with the funders, combined with the biotechs to really make these translational dreams a reality. And it, I mean, it's really no secret that we're in the middle of a golden age in the biotech industry. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like every single biotech startup under the sun is getting funded these days with absolutely <laughs> insane valuations. sometimes, <laughs> right? Companies with very little IP, sometimes with little more than an idea in mind, are getting these multi million dollar valuations. And perhaps a part of it is, you know, there's just a lot of money flowing around with so many different VC firms, angel investors getting into the fray. Every one of these investors kind of seems to have its own angle of attack. So what's civilization's approach to actually funding startups? And as a bigger question, do you think this sort of funding environment is sustainable?
2: Yeah, we think a lot. About that at the firm, and I am frankly too young to understand the cyclical nature of a market, right? I've only <laughs> been doing this and um, have been following finance since pretty much I would say the last recession. What I've been told is the market is cyclical. Uh, this um, you could go online and you could look at, you know, how the Nasdaq and S and P sort of have oscillated over every 10, 15, 20 year cycle, and many would argue we're in one of the greatest. Bull markets of American history, right? Um, we're a fund that focuses on investing in cutting-edge innovation in health technologies and in biology, and that may be synthetic biology, cell and gene therapies, diagnostics, um, as well as digital health. The way we view things is we want to find promising companies and take a long-term, long-term stance on their future success, right? The market dictates terms today, and it'll dictate terms tomorrow. We still have to stay in the game and keep partnering with those people. So I can't say much about valuations, and I can't say much about you know. It seems like everyone's being funded. There's certainly a lot of money being printed by the federal government. Uh, Federal interest rates low. uh, Interest rates are as low as they've ever been, Um, and there's a push to accelerate the age of biotech, which you know the pandemic probably kicked off, but I would say it was already kicked off even before then. It's just potentially been accelerated. Um, it's kind of how I th- see things and people are willing to just take more risks right now. And on your point of how do we situate ourselves as a firm, I think I've already commented on that, but finding great f- founders, finding people that want to build really big ideas and great companies in these different sectors and partnering mm-hmm. with them one of the fun things I really love is our firm also focuses quite a bit on entrepreneurs out of labs, postdocs, PhD students, the younger folk, right, starting companies. Because frankly, when I look around, who are the Mark Zuckerbergs and Larry and Sergeys of our generation in biotech? Mm. And when I asked that question to myself or my friends, I don't think there are many um, that have you know, <laughs> built trillion-dollar companies or 100 billion, 150 billion-dollar companies. And why isn't that right? What is inhibiting these people from building these companies? And part of it's been access to capital. Part of it, part of it's been the trust relationship between between an advisor and an advisee, right? Part of it's been the trust of the funders in um, trusting these younger folk to build some of these companies. And we're seeing a lot of younger people starting to build companies now. And that's something the firm gets very excited about investing in people out of the great academic institutions that want to enter the foray of entrepreneurship um, over academia or over joining a pharmaceutical company.
0: Yeah, this is so exciting. I love the, the spirit of, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation that seems to be everywhere amongst the trainees nowadays. And talking to you, I see that now it seems like, you know, the money's listening up. They're starting to recruit um and and put in play young scientists who are like just just stepping away from the bench so uh and to your point yeah why aren't there any mark zuckerberg starting a company maybe it's because you know it's a bunch of old fogies with all the money uh making all the allocations. so i can't wait to see what you do with civilization over there um and i have to thank you for joining us for this chat but before we let you go i'm going to ask you a couple questions Uh, more peripheral to science. Uh, First, if you could answer any single scientific question, I mean, you're in a position to do this, my man, because you don't even have to answer yourself. Just sign a check. I'm just kidding. But if you could answer any or have answered any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that question be? It's
2: the same question that got me, I think, into science in the first place. And if I was better at math, I probably would have pursued it, which is physics. And it's still understanding what the hell happens inside of a black hole. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can say what the hell, but what the heck happens inside of a black hole? Um, It's this amazing, you know, area of gravity that has this massive pull. It's so large, we can't even think about it, you know, two different behemoths are at each other's throats It's a quantum theory is a theory of relativity what actually happens in this thing and what the heck's on the other side of it right and i've loved nolan movies i've loved um reading stephen hawking's books when i was younger and it also always just pushed me to think you know is there life on the other side of that thing where does it end up where does all this matter go because it has to be going somewhere right if we're following basic rules of thermodynamics and so that's probably the question the burning question i love following and such an admirer of space mission and, uh, um, people have been on certain Saturday night live shows and just try to analyze these people and understand what goes through their heads to get them to do these monumental things. And so fundamentally, I'm just trying to figure out what's inside of a black hole.
0: Just trying to figure that out. Well, I guess when you're, you, you study neuro and you're tackling questions like personhood and cognition, the great mysteries, all that's left is what's on the other side of a black hole. I mean, come on, man. Just pick a smaller question next time. You're giving me a headache. <laughs> and to finish, uh, if you were not a scientist, uh, what do you think you'd be? I've gotten um, very much into being a
2: home barista over the last year, mostly because of the pandemic. I brought, bought a little Breville, and I've been uh, pulling some pretty great espresso shots, according to my wife, although both of us don't have the best taste Um For coffee so i would probably open up a small cafe uh and be a barista and my wife is a fantastic um, baker and so she would help on that front and that's probably what i would be doing
0: huh a barista but of course still contemplating the mysteries of black holes that would be a, a fun cup of coffee to share with you my friend um and this has been a really fun chat thank you so much again uh, for joining us for this episode uh, you got to come back again and keep us in the loop on the next big things that you're funding please would love to do that thank you for having me dylan and everyone. it's been very fun that brings us to the end of our show don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers you can also reach out to us on twitter at stem cell podcast or by email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests we had a really interesting and novel guest on today the talking about venture capital we want to get more like that a lot of new insights and i would say underserved subjects for the podcast so guys tune in in a couple of weeks we're going to have someone else talk to you and some more stories in the roundup until then thanks for listening